Here's what we're learning. Lent is first marked by lamenting. And to lament is basically a form of protest, a way to process emotions, kind of space to voice confusion for God's people. To cry is human, but to lament is godly and Christian. In fact, most of the Bible laments, they follow a certain order. We looked at this. They have a a specific form, and this is the kicker, um, that highlights a trust in God, ultimately a trust in Jesus. So to lament well, we turn to God, first of all. I mean, that's the big, that's the one where we, I mean, right out of the gate, we don't make it, right? We sit in the gate and like, well, it'll go away. I'll talk to my buddy. I'll, but to turn to God with what's bothering us, that, that's a huge, 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 huge first step. We bring our complaints to him. We boldly ask, and then we choose to trust. And again, all roads of lament lead to trusting God. And again, not that God would move automatically, right, or move only if you're righteous enough, Right? In the strictest sense, there's really not uh, uh, any more enough when it comes to Christ. Right? We, he, he loves us enough. Right? There it is. Um, and then there's the decision to repent and do something about it, right? Or not to repent and to simply feel bad about it. We, we have a choice. And, and well, th- that first one, you don't have a choice. You feel it or you don't feel it. But then to move on to that second step right? Metamelamai is just that, that feeling like, wow, I know this is bad for me. I know it's going to kill me, but yeah, <laughs> right? Metamelamai. How do we get to metanoia to the point where what we see is hurting them to the point where it's hurting us and we cannot stand to not do anything about it, right? We, we've got to turn around and do something either about our own lives or the lives of people around us. And how do you move from metamelamai to metanoia? Here's Jesus' suggestion. Go out and find lost sheep. That's pretty much it. Go out and find lost sheep. Go out and do what you once did before. And I want you to listen closely to what Jesus says will happen if we, number one, if we lament, and then number two, if we repent, if we go back to what made the church grow at such a phenomenal pace. Now listen very closely to me. It hundreds and thousands of places and times in history, the church has grown phenomenally. It's not like the early church was, ah, right? We read in the letters of Paul, the early church, they, they're no different than modern churches. They, they're filled with people who, who are broken and do really, really silly things. We read about it in the letters, right? And that's why he had to write the letters because they were doing silly things. So to go back, go back to what made the church grow, and it has grown in leaps and bounds. We looked at that last week. It's, it's moved across the globe and just burned through fresh communities who were searching for what the message gave them, life. Go back to gatherings where sinners love the church and the church loves sinners. So here's what happened. This is from last week's passage in Luke chapter 15. Right at the very end, I'm going to kind of jump right into today's message. This was the parable of the lost sheep, Luke 15, verses 5 and 6. It says this, and I want you to pay attention to what happens again if we lament and then we repent. It says this, and when he finds it, the lost sheep, he joyfully, right, catch that, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. So joy is found at the end of the process. This whole Lent process is not, the goal is not to, oh, every week go deeper and deeper into gloomy dark, right? It's to examine our gloomy and darkness, see the solution, and then move toward the solution, right? And, and anticipate and celebrate the solution, which is Christ Jesus, right? That, that, I mean, that's the whole, the whole point of, of, of everything. So joy is found at the end of the process. Now here, catch this. It's not like he didn't love the other sheep, 
you catch that in the parable of the lost sheep. The, 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 the little boy, the shepherd who went out and found that one lost sheep, it's not like he didn't love those other 99 sheep. He loved those other 99 sheep. If any one of them had wandered off, boom, he'd be gone instantly. He'd be off chasing after you because that's the way the good shepherd operates. He goes after the lost sheep. Off he goes without question, without hesitation. But listen, watch closely. Not only the shepherd and his friends celebrate, right? We keep reading verse 17. I tell you in the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven. It's like there's rejoicing on earth and there's rejoicing in heaven whenever a lost sinner is found. More rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who did not need to repent. Now notice it says righteous person. They weren't not righteous people. So, of course, there's also rejoicing for each one of those 99 who repented. If you were to go back into the story, and we don't see the story, we only see that one 99, but I bet you we have a story for every one of those 99 sheep that the shepherd went out and found and brought back in. The point is this, the sheep has rejoined the community of God. That lost sheep, when he was alone, literally in the Bible, he was without life. But when he rejoined the body, he rejoined life. Literally, life is in the body. When you're alone and when you're out of the body, you are without life. The life is in the body. Craziest thing. Everybody celebrates, right? The lost sheep wins and the community wins. Why do the 99 sheep celebrate? Doesn't say it, but I'm, I'm going to hopefully just let me go with my imagination here. My guess is because those other 99 sheep and the lost sheep, they'd probably been through things together, right? They'd been through times of certainty and uncertainty. They'd been chased by the wolf. They'd had good times and bad times. And, and when they saw that one lost, what do you think? They all just kind of went about their business? No, man, they were, they were sweating it out. They were, and then when that one comes home, it's a huge celebration. All, everybody is celebrating Right? Those sheep, they've been through things together. They've been through the ringer together. Right? There's a bond of love with those sheep. I know I'm going way off. Hang with me here. We've seen this in folks who serve together in military and police and things like that. The band of brothers kind of thing, right? Like we've been through this and we'll die for each other because we've been through something together. We, the body, We've been through stuff together. Now, I'm going to get a little tender here. I recognize that war is bad. I, I recognize that people in police work, people in the military, they are asked to kill other human beings, and that is a huge ask. And I, and I know we have people who have been in the military here, so I'm going to be super sensitive here. All right, so you understand where I'm coming from. I completely honor our military heroes, but I have a confession to make, and it's not necessarily about heroes. It's about guns and violence, okay? So I'm just saying I, I recognize Ukraine. I, I understand that the war is horrible and guns, but I, I, I have a confession to make, um, horrible confession. To make a guilty pleasure brings me Real, it just brings me great joy and happiness. It makes me smile. Um, sometimes late at night, I watch certain things on TV. Not proud of it. If Diane didn't love me so much, I think she'd just soon leave the room when I watch this stuff. I don't know if any of you watch this stuff too. Any of you like revenge movies? Liam Neeson, James Bond, Jack Reacher. Right, here's the reason I love these movies, and it's sick. It's, it's just a little bit sick, and I, I recognize that. So you don't need to go, you're sick, pastor. I know. 
I love these movies because I know the bad guys are going to get it, and they're going to get it good. They're going to get it in the most creative, imaginative. They're going to suffer, right? And through the movie, the producers have made me feel this way. They have made me hate these bad people to the point where at the end of the movie, Diane's like, Jerry, (laughs) you need to sit down. You're like doing your charger dance right now because somebody got killed in a movie. I know, but they're bad and they deserved it. And isn't this exciting? And, And I'm like beside myself with joy. So let's unpack that because that's just not healthy, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. So I'm going to turn the spotlight off of me, and I'm going to turn it on to you. What makes you happy? (laughs) What makes you smile? What gives you joy? Um, If I were to ask, if I were to stick a microphone up here and let you all take turns, here's the weird thing about joy and happiness. There would probably be at least... 10 different things for each and every one of you. Times that by, let's pretend there's 100 people in the building. We got 10,000 reasons for our hearts to find joy. All sorts of things, crazy things make us happy. I mean, literally, I could ask each one of you, and we'd be all over the map. I know you're thinking about things like, oh, I bet Jerry would be shocked if I told him I like this. I don't want to hear it. A couple studies, random studies, right? Random studies I looked at this week. One study... The three sounds that make people smile. Sounds. It was very fascinating. Three things that make people smile. Number one, people applauding you. I'd like to hear some more applause. No, that's not all. You almost started to to applaud there. I was like, whoa, you guys are breaking loose. No. People love to hear applaud. Second thing, and, and what's weird is these things are so unrelated, right? The applause is like a little egotistical, a little narcissistic, whatever. The laughter of a baby. Doesn't matter what the baby's laughing about, right? If you made him laugh or the grass made him laugh. I mean, who knows what makes babies laugh? We smile. The third thing, again, totally disconnected, water. The sound of water makes us smile. I have no idea. Another study, totally random. Again, asked a whole bunch of people further on in, in life and years, and, and what, what is it? What made you smile in life? What still makes you smile? What's the lasting smile? Nothing material, nothing material whatsoever, not the Mercedes, not the house. It was all relationships. And we all know this, right? It was relationships. I mean, right down the list, this, these things are what made me happy, my relationships. These are the things that made me sad, my loss of relationships. It was all about relationships, people. So it appears that happiness and joy is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Aristotle was right, right? The pursuit of happiness is unavoidable. We all want to be happy. Everybody, wants, everybody cries, but we all want to be happy. But its character is not undisputed, right? The phenomenon of happiness is highly disputed because our perception of happiness is just a little bit off, right? It's limited and it's distorted. It's, it's limited because we're human. We can't see everything. We can't be everywhere at once. So we're, we're definitely limited in that fashion, and also we're broken. We have sin in our lives, so whatever we see and like, we need to recognize the fact that that like, that desire, might be a result of our brokenness, because there's a lot of things that we desire that will kill us. That's, dis- that's distortion. We think, oh, that'll give me life. No, it'll kill you, right? We know these things. Right? We disagree about whether happiness even exists. Is it truly achievable, or is it just a mirage? 
right? We disagree about what happiness is. Does it lie in riches? Does it lie in wisdom, power, pleasure, fame? I mean, where is it? And we disagree about how it can be achieved, right? Are we going after the American dream or should we go on American Idol? What is going to make us happy? I mean, we're, we're just all over the map. And when we turn to God's word, it doesn't appear to be a silver bullet, a joy silver bullet. I'm just going to quickly go. This is Psalm chapter 65. Listen to this now. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Where the morning dawns, where the evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty, and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow, and the hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks, and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy, and they sing so in Genesis, God says that the world is very, very good, and the writer of this psalm seems to find great joy and happiness just living in good creation, right? It doesn't have to be anything in particular. He's just like, life is awesome. It's beautiful. The, the, the hills, the, the, the ground gives forth its bounty. God brings the rain, and life is just good. It brings happiness and joy, didn't it? It wasn't a bank account. It, it wasn't any of those kind of things. Did you notice that creation itself seemed to be filled with joy and happiness, just being allowed to serve the rest of creation, right? There's joy in serving, and creation finds great joy. According to this writer of this psalm, creation is thrilled when it serves the rest of creation, and that, that should be us too. When we serve each other, it should thrill us and give us just over abundance of joy. Now, I want you to listen to this from Jeremiah talking about the return from exile in Babylon, the simple pleasures of life, like the joy of a wedding party. Jeremiah chapter 33, it says, There will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thanks offerings to the house of the Lord. So simple pleasures, we get joy. Marriage, a wedding party, we get joy in kids. This is a little bit off, this proverb, you know, I'll paraphrase it. Parents of righteous children have great joy. Parents who raise wise children rejoice in them. I hope that's okay if I did that, because that includes all of us. Even perfume makes the biblical list of joy. So if you're thinking, is this, is this? No, it's not. It's cool. Listen to this, Proverbs chapter 27. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the good, a good friend, pleasantness of a friend, right? And so, Lots of different things make lots of different people happy. Lots of people smile. Lots of different things experience joy. Begs the question, is there anything that we can all feel joy in? Is there any that we can all rally around? It can't be love. I, I know that was the first thing that jumped into my head. No, because there's limits to what people love. People love really, really weird, dangerous things. Um, people love to hurt each other. So it can't be love, Right? Even salvation looks different to different people. You, you recognize that. And you say, well, Pastor Jerry, didn't have the same place, same thing for all of us, you know, we're all together. No, not at all. See, if Jesus has indeed inaugurated the age to come, not completely, but in part, then we can now experience heaven, not completely, but in part, 
even now. And that salvation for one person might be, for example, a dad being in the house, you know, a single mom trying to raise a family, and, and, then, and, a, and a dad. I mean, what a gift, what a, what a blessing, what a uh, salvation for that family. And yet another family, dad, is not salvation. For another family, salvation is when we can get dad out of the house because dad beats the kids. So salvation is different for all of us. It looks different. It feels different. It's God healing us of our different brokenness. We all have different brokenness. Yes, there is the sameness of our brokenness, but we're all experiencing radically different salvation. The Apostle Paul is going to set us straight, right? You've been waiting. All right, here we go. This is his letter to the Philippians, not the Philippines, different place entirely. Um, this is chapter 1, verse 3 and 5. It says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel for the first day until now. So we're reading from Paul's letter to the church founded at Philippi. It's called the Joyful Letter for a good reason. In this letter, Paul answers the questions that we're all asking. Yes, happiness is real. It's not an illusion. It's, it, it is real. It can be achieved. Right? Um, I know what it is, and I know how to get it. Right? This is what he's going to tell us in this letter. This is what he tells. He's really telling the church at Philippi, but he's telling us by extension. And when Paul thinks about them, there's two things that happen right away. Right here in this verse, verses 3 through 5, he's thankful. He's thankful to God, and he's moved to pray for them. He just thinks about them, and his heart soars, right? First of all, his heart soars toward God. Thank you for them. And then his heart soars towards them. Lord, please make them whole. Help them whatever they're struggling. Just be God for them. His heart breaks for them. Gratitude. And again, notice why he's thankful. He's thankful because there's 99 other sheep laboring at home while Paul goes out and searches for lost sheep. Right? He, he's, he's looking around and he's seeing, I'm not the only one in this. I'm not alone. Every, all, all, these, all these people, they're all doing their part and it, it, it gives him incredible joy. Paul's joy is in knowing that he's not alone. So as he writes verse 6, you can see the smile slowly cross his face, right? Paul always prays with joy because he knows, he's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He always prays for joy because he knows that if they do their part, God will be faithful and do his part. But notice this, Paul's confidence isn't in the Christianity of the Christians in Philippi. His confidence is in the godness of God. Once you recognize his confidence isn't in the people, if you put your confidence in people... That's risky. People will fail you. He's putting his confidence in God and what God is doing in those people. What God is doing in those people, nothing can change. That, that will never stop. But whether those people accept, there's the variable. There's the subjectiveness of it all. Again, later in the chapter, he makes no bones about this, this, this desire that he has uh, to be, to, 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 to have joy in being with these people in Philippi. He can't wait to be with Jesus. Like joy unspeakable if he gets to be with Jesus, but he also understands what's going to make his joy complete. Listen to this. This is further on in the chapter, verses 23 and 24. It says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, right? I get to be with my Savior. I no longer have to deal with pain and suffering. Man, that's great. But... 
but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul's perspective on the joy and happiness of the Christian life was all about the end of the story. It was all about the end of the movie, right, the revenge movie, all about who was going to be saved and what all was going to be saved. I had, as a youth pastor, I had table leaders, and, and I might have explained this before, but in the junior high ministry, I had high school leaders who were table leaders of a four or five junior hires. And what I found was very, very fascinating, and it wasn't, I didn't plan this because I, I just don't, I'm not a good planner, but it, it rolled out beautifully. These junior hires, they would watch their friends get saved, right? Their, their incredibly broken friends get saved, and they would come to me, and, they, and as soon as they got in high school, it was like as freshmen, like normally I would have college age students for the high school students, these freshmen in high school, can I, can I please, please be a table leader? Can I please be a table leader? I want to do for my friends what my table leader did for me. And if I can be saved, then my weird, crazy friends at school can be saved too. Can I please invite them? And, it, and it, again, it had nothing to do with me. They, they became Paul, right? They knew. They, they knew salvation. They said, my friends got to have some of this, right? They're broken. They're messed up. And, and if God can save me, then he can save them too. And you just saw this crazy confidence in these teenagers. And they signed up. I'll be a table leader. I'll pray for six or seven kids. Like, wow, that's amazing. I loved it. Paul's joy and my teen's joy was found in the assurance that all human suffering and pain had a viable solution. Everybody can be healed. And this gave them incredible joy. It gave Paul incredible joy. And again, for Paul, it didn't matter if it was their fault or not. He was in a position to relieve the suffering of others, and that gave him joy. Didn't matter if they did something stupid to be in the trouble that they were in. He was in a position to fix the problem. It isn't my fault. I had nothing to do with this. You can hear him saying this, but guess what? God's called me to make you whole again, and I get to do that. And at the end of the day, when, it, when, I'm, when, we're, when we're done, the feeling, the feeling, the elation that another lost sheep has been found, you celebrate in your soul. Paul saw healing happening all around him. And it gave him this crazy, deep sense of joy. I'm going to show you verse 7, but I'm going to show it to you from the, the message version, Eugene Peterson, because it just fleshes out where Paul's grammar in the new international version gets a little odd. It's just hard to see. This is verse 7. He has perfect confidence in him, and here's, here's the ground for his confidence, right? It's not all fanciful for me to think this way about you. Right? I'm not just crazy. I'm not, I don't just like people. I love you for a reason. My prayers and hopes have deep roots in reality. You have, after all, stuck with me all the way from the time I was thrown in jail, put on trial, and came out of it in one piece. All along, you have experienced with me the most generous help from God. Paul knew that Jesus loved even the least of these, and so Paul found his joy in the joy of his Savior. Whatever made his Savior happy made Paul happy. And what made the joy of Jesus complete? This is from John. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 15. It says this, If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made complete. In his gospel, the apostle John says that what gave joy to Jesus was the salvation of all creation. And salvation, by definition, is being reconciled to God, being reconciled to self, neighbor, and the rest of creation. It's not just you and God. 
salvation. We're all, we're all experiencing God. We're all joining the perichoresis, the dance of the Trinity, the relationship of the Trinity. To the point that if you're broken and you're hurting, then I'm broken and I'm hurting. Because I know I'm no better. I'm in the same boat as you. If you're hurting, I'm hurting. Because there's something wrong still. And that wrongness can get to me. So there's something wrong out there and I've got to address it. See, when I see you being made whole, I rejoice because there's evidence. That's evidence of God's good love, great love, and faithfulness to his promises. And Paul wasn't the only disciple to pick up on this incredible aspect of biblical joy. Listen to this. This is from John's first letter, not his gospel. Same guy, different book of the Bible near the very, very end. Um, He's writing on behalf kind of of the early church, the early believers, the apostles, the early disciples. said, we, this is the we part, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this, why? To make our joy complete. Our joy will be complete when you all, they all, when we all join in the healing. Nobody gets left out. Even the person in the revenge movie Right? He probably got beat as a kid. There's a reason he's an evil terrorist. Hurt people hurt people. Even the dad that hits his kids. Right? Who doesn't want to see that man healed? I know his kids want to see him healed. Jesus wants to see him healed too. So what makes you happy? What makes you smile? What gives you joy? If it's God faithfully making you whole, that's good. That's really good. If it's God working through you and in you to not only make you whole, but to make your neighbors whole, well, that's even better, right? I used to show a movie to my students the youth ministry. It was called Noah's Ark. And it's not about Noah in the Bible. It's about a professional surfer, Noah Snyder uh, from East Coast. And it's a movie that he was in a really dark place in his professional career, and he was ready to end his life. And a friend who had been bugging him and bugging him and bugging him and bugging him wouldn't stop bugging him to come to church with him. He said, fine, I'll go with you, whatever found Christ. The whole point of the movie is Noah decided this is, this is fantastic. I, I'm saved. This is amazing. But what's heaven going to be like without all my buddies? Not only is what heaven is going to be like without all my buddies, but what will life be like in eternity for my buddies? I love them. I now have found the way out, but they haven't. And so the story of Noah's Ark, is it's his effort to make sure he's not the only one going. He's going to make sure that every person he knows is going to go with him. And that gives him incredible joy, and that gets him out of his, his funk. So if it involves, you know, if your joy involves making you whole, that's great. If it involves making the people you love around you, friends, neighbors whole, that's great. But if it involves God making whole even the worst of the worst of the worst of those revenge movies, 
Well, then you've got a joy and a happiness that can be shared with every single person on earth. Everybody wants to be healed. Everybody wants to be healed, including Jesus. Jesus wants everybody healed. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus intended when he asked us to periodically come together and share communion. I'm going to share communion now. But I want you to understand, as, as, as you take that cup, this, it's so easy to sit in our church buildings preparing as we are for Easter. It's easy to fall into thinking that this, this, this is just for us. That God sent his son to die on the cross for us. It is. It is, in a sense, for us. But also, in a sense, it was supposed to flow in and through us to provide salvation to a hungry and thirsty world, even to international terrorists and dads that beat their families. I don't know if you guys remember the old Heinz commercials, Heinz ketchup, anticipation. Right? You knew it was eventually going to come out of the bottle, whether you had to use a knife on it, whether you got, had to get up on top of it and bounce on it. The ketchup was going to eventually arrive. You knew it, right? But the anticipation was pretty cool. It was a little bit of a struggle, right? But you knew, you knew, just like Douglas Right? And his buddy was going to be there. Nothing could rob him of his joy. You knew that ketchup was eventually going to hit those french fries and everything was going to be beautiful. This is the way we approach Easter in the Lenten season. With a certain anticipation, not, not a deep, gloomy anticipation, but a giddy right? anticipation. Because as we look around, we know that God is healing. Those people that irritate us, God's working on them. He's also working on you so that you won't be so irritated, right? God's good. That's just the way he is. What God started, he's going to finish. It's a slow process. <laughs> slow, slow process. But whatever he starts, he will finish. He will finish. With you and what's happening with all around the world in the news, right? He's not done with creation. Creation got sidetracked just a little bit, but he's not finished with you, and he's not finished with his creation. He will finish what he started. Jesus wants to make our joy complete. That means we don't stop at our salvation. Our joy is made complete when we bring all of our buddies along for the ride. Make sure that nobody gets left behind. That's what gave Paul joy. That's a joy that we can all share that God is at work and he's not finished. Heavenly Father, I think that was the purpose in all this, that we would join through this sacrament. That we're seeing into the future, we're seeing us being reconciled to you, Father, by way of your broken body and spilt blood. That, that was the way, that was the gate that, Father, that led us into your presence. So we celebrate and we honor the name of Jesus this morning, the name above all other names.
we pray with anticipation that what you started, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, you will finish. In our individual lives and in our corporate lives, you're not done with your creation. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, we pray all these things. Amen.